Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Hope everyone had a happy holiday. It has been a while since I put out an episode, and it is not for lack of trying. <laughs> it has been an absolutely relentless and busy fall and winter, uh, but happy to be back. Uh, this week, uh, I'm home until uh, tomorrow, and tomorrow I head to Templeton, California to work a couple of days with Vineyard Elementary School, and then back home on Thursday. Some upcoming events to remind you of, uh, if you want to get a jump on the PD uh, season this spring, uh, next month uh, in February, I will be speaking at the PLC Summit in Phoenix. I will be speaking on February 14th, uh, but that summit runs the 13th to the 15th in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, Grading from the inside out, the two-day training, we've got two of those coming up this spring in Grand Rapids, Michigan, March 4th and 5th, and in Seattle, Washington, that'll be with Natalie Vardabasso on March 13th and 14th. Standards-based learning and action two-day training, that will also be in Grand Rapids. So we're doing them back-to-back. It'll be March 4th and 5th, grading from the inside out. And then March 6th and 7th, that'll be in Grand Rapids for standards-based learning and action. Also, a standards-based learning and action, I'll be in St. Louis, Missouri, April 2nd and 3rd. So of course, I'll have links in the show notes for all of those events. And also a reminder that my latest book, Redefining Student Accountability, is still available if you want to read about how to hold kids accountable without distorting their achievement levels and without using grades in the grade book. Link in the show notes for all of that. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. And a big thank you to longtime listeners who've hung in there with me as there's been long pauses in between episodes, but I do really appreciate you. This week, my guest is a former student turned teacher, Ashley Aoki. Uh, The focus of our conversation is on spirals of inquiry, which Ashley has really immersed herself in. So I'm very excited to get caught up with her. Uh, Ashley was a student at one of the middle schools I worked at, and uh, it's great to have a conversation with her. And in Assessment Corner, I want to revisit this idea of the pressure of assessment and offer some perspective on some of the conversations I've been having lately in PD sessions and really give you some perspective on what actually needs to change when the pressure starts to ramp up. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. mindset moment, I want to talk about elevating your moments, which is something I like to do to make life feel a little bit more special and make it seem like I'm living the good life even when I'm doing everyday things. The big things, they look, they always make life feel special. Trip to Hawaii, new car, something like that. That is no doubt a way to make our lives feel elevated. But those things often occur after long intervals, like we take a vacation once or twice a year. We might buy a new car every few years. I go about every 10 years with a vehicle. I bought my last truck in 2019, and prior to that, it was 2008. So I drive my cars into the ground, and it's usually about a decade. So while those big things are big and they're memorable, they don't really occur very often. So something I've developed a habit of doing is making everyday moments feel a little bit more elevated by doing something just a little bit extra. Look, I know we sometimes don't have time for that because life gets busy. But when you have time, I think it's really important to make the effort. It's those small things that really elevate our lives. Now, my example of this is when I make scrambled eggs. Now, you might think, scrambled eggs? What in the world could elevate scrambled eggs? And, well, let me tell you. And I have to give full credit to Gordon Ramsay, um, from whom I learned this. 
And for those of you who know me, you know, and I've mentioned this in the podcast before, I'm a little bit obsessed with food TV. Not completely, but um, I love to cook. I, I don't know how good I am at it, but I, but I love to cook. And I watch a lot of Gordon Ramsay uh, TV and I watch a lot of Food Network and all that because I love to learn. So food is something that I sort of like to immerse myself in. So you could just crack a few eggs and turn on the frying pan, dump those eggs into the frying pan and stir them up and have scrambled eggs. Or here's what you could do. Crack a few eggs into a pot, preferably a nonstick pot, not a pan, but a pot. Cold eggs and don't whisk them. Add two knobs of butter, as Gordon Ramsay likes to say, two knobs of butter. I don't know how to measure a knob of butter, but I'm pretty sure everyone knows what a knob of butter looks like when they see it. So you've got your nonstick pot and you've got your butter and you turn the burner on high and you begin to stir the eggs. So you put the pot on the high heat, absolute high heat, as high as it can go, and you just start stirring. Stir it like you're cooking a risotto where you're constantly stirring the rice or the risotto. You, you have to constantly stir the eggs on high heat for about 30 seconds. After 30 seconds, take the pot off the burner and continue to stir the eggs for another 15 to 30 seconds. Just keep an eye on it. No salt, no pepper, just eggs and butter start cooking. And the eggs will, of course, begin to break up as you use your spatula to, to stir them. And the butter, of course, is going to melt. Now, again, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, 30 seconds on. Keep alternating until the eggs are almost cooked. Now, when the eggs are almost cooked, you're going to add a teaspoon of creme fraiche. Uh, you could use sour cream as well, because sour cream is typically more readily available in most grocery stores. But if you can find creme fraiche, it's a little less sour. Uh, you can make your own. I've made my own before. One tablespoon of plain yogurt and a cup of heavy cream and let it sit in a warm area for 24 hours, and you've got yourself some creme fraiche. So at the very last minute, when the eggs are almost cooked, add in it a teaspoon of creme fraiche and start to stir. That'll that'll sort of cool the eggs down, kind of stop them from, from cooking and also give them a bit of a silky texture. When you're done, a little bit of salt and pepper, of course, and then maybe chop some chives or some green onions on top of that. Done. That is how you elevate scrambled eggs. And when I make them like that, which I don't do every single time, but when I do that, it just kind of makes breakfast feel a little bit more special. It's, you know, a little extra effort goes a long way to making life feel a little bit elevated. You know, it's the proper cocktail glass, right? Without the copper mug, a Moscow mule just doesn't hit the same. Uh, maybe it's the way you plate your food. Maybe it's that drawer organizer that you buy for the bottom drawer of your bathroom vanity to organize all of your things. I did that. And it just, it feels different. Maybe it is your scrambled eggs. Whatever it is, be on the lookout for ways to elevate your moments. Because as you string together all of these little elevated moments, I think you're going to begin to feel as if your entire life is elevated. Joining me today for the interview is Ashley Aoki. Ashley is an educator in School District 67, which of course is my old school district, 
And yes, she is a former student of a school that I worked in. So great to have Ashley here. She is currently serving on the leadership team at the Network of Inquiry and Indigenous Education and is passionate about education, educating for quality and equity so all learners can thrive. Ashley works, learns, and plays on the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Okanagan Silix people. So Ashley, it is so great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be great. This is a lot of fun. Uh, certainly a lot of uh, testing the memory, uh, trip down memory lane. Uh, you were, I believe, in sixth grade when we were at McNichol Park Middle School. And uh, it's uh, it's great to see you choosing education uh, as a profession. And I'm very sort of looking, much looking forward to uh, our conversation today, for sure. So as we get going here, Ashley, uh, and, and before we dig into the conversation about inquiry, because I know that's a that's a big part of your work right now. I'd like you to highlight, you've, you've been in education for nine years, so take us through that journey a little bit. Um, of course, from my perspective as a former student and of both the school that I worked in, but also the school district, um, I'm really curious as to why you chose education and when was the moment that you decided that education was your pathway forward? That's a great question. So I think my decision was made in childhood. And... Mm -hmm. It's fascinating because as I reflected on this question, I thought about the moments that I was um, designing spelling tests and math quizzes for my little sister, which I'm sure she enjoyed thoroughly. Of course. Um, my <laughs> parents had created a um, downstairs area with a chalkboard and a place to hang paper. And so I really took over that space as my classroom um, for further learning after school hours happened. Um, when I was little, my mom would say that I was the boss of everyone. And I think that now was, could be defined as leadership, <laughs> but I, uh, I had the, the qualities of educator in my bones since I was very little. Um, so when I graduated from high school, from Penn High, I, mm -hmm knew that the destination, my arrow was pointed due north towards education and mm -hmm. entered into my university career um, very quickly knowing that that was going to be the pathway for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, spent my four years at UVic, which was such a joy. Um, I love the West Coast and mm -hmm. uh, love Victoria so much. And then came home and there were a variety of circumstances that um, made that decision quite clear. Um, one of them was family. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started my career here in SD67 and was really fortunate because at that time, um, getting a position, a full-time position was um, kind of um, not elite, but it was a little bit more rare. Um, mm -hmm. I had heard that, and from university professors, they were basically advising us to um, know and feel like you're going to be on the TOC list for some time. Mm -hmm. So I was really fortunate to enter into my first contract right out of the gates. And wow. I was young. I was, I think, 22. Wow. And so that was a really eye-opening experience, but also mm -hmm. a lot of learning. And uh, I happened to return back to my elementary school this time as a teacher oh, wow. and it was neat because there were people across the hallway from me and 
down the hallway who had been there as teachers when I was a student. Mm -hmm. And it was super um, homey and warm coming back to a school and being able to love on it differently. So I have a lot of highlights speaking of experiences and you know I think in education sometimes the time can blend together yeah Um, but my first year really stands out and those students are graduating this year and so it's really uh really exciting and let me tell you getting a hug from a grade 12 student and in particular a grade 12 boy um, (laughs) after teaching them in the third and fourth grade is uh something to treasure so that has oh, been wow. a little bit of my experience. And then I went and did my master's and have gone on and done other things in education. But uh, yeah. yeah, the start was when I was just so little. <laughs> that's that's, uh, that's when you know it's predetermined when you're when you're a little, a little kid and you're already setting up school and after school learning sessions. Have you been at the same school for, the, for all nine years that you've been teaching? No. No, I haven't. So where did you start? You started at... Um... I started at Columbia. Columbia. I was going to say Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. And then I spent um, five or six years at Naramata Elementary School. Mm -hmm. And last year I moved um, physically. Um, We relocated to Summerland. And so I was teaching at Trout Creek Elementary for a year. And now I'm at Wilsey. So I've bounced around. You have uh, bounced around. Right. I know all those schools very well. I used to live both in the uh, Columbia catchment area and the Wiltsey catchment area. So uh, obviously you're, you're saying things are very familiar to me, uh, having worked in that district for so many years. But uh, great to have you in the profession. It's clear that your passion for the profession is there. And so I want to redirect us now into the substance of our conversation, which has to do with your passion and, and inquiry-based learning. So I'm going to ask you a very simple question, Ashley. Um, what is it about inquiry-based learning that drew you in? Um, like, why inquiry? Why? What is it about it for you that captivated you so early in your career? So I was introduced to the concept of inquiry through Trevor McKenzie's work, but then also fell into um, the work through the spirals of inquiry. Mm-hmm. And the thing that captivated me is that there are a lot of questions that lead to more questions that lead to more questions. And sometimes we find answers along the way. So for me, I really love the spirals of inquiry because while there is a framework, it is non-prescriptive, which means that there isn't a specific destination in which educators are reaching towards. I guess the other thing that I would say is there's a lot of openness. And that to me is what supports learners in their learning because um, every student, every class will need something different. So if I think about the spirals of inquiry framework um, that I've used and uplifted in the district, but also in my classroom, I think about how it starts with three open questions for students in the scan. What are you learning about? Why is it important? And who are two adults in this building who you are connected to? Mm. And those three questions for me reveal a lot about A, the student's connectivity, because there's so much research that shows that if students are connected in their space, they feel they belong, that their quality of education and learning improves. And then to be able to articulate what are you learning about and why is it important 
are also indicative of how the educator is doing, um, providing the space for that learning to happen. And so those three questions also really sharpened my teaching practice because I felt that the what are you learning about was articulated well, but the why was it important mm -hmm. um, was something that was missing in my own instructional practice. So when I'm able to flow through the spirals of inquiry, it also shines a mirror back to the places that are real strengths for me in my teaching practice, but also the areas that need more focus and need more attention. And that could also be, you know, dependent on the time of year that it is with students, the type of students that are in my classroom. So this year, um, I went through a full spiral um, with my students. And the thing that I love about inquiry is that it's not exclusive. Everyone in some way can kind of connect into and be scooped into this overarching almost umbrella, I guess you could say, of inquiry. So in the scanning process, um, I have a couple of CEAs who are in the classroom with me and they're amazing and so talented. And I was able to also invite them into the scanning process with me. So they were also reaffirmed because they had um, students who were saying, you're someone I'm connected to. Mm -hmm. And so that was also something that was really bucket filling. So I love that it's community-based. I love that there's openness. And then I also love that it gives educators a clear direction if they're willing to look at their teaching practice from um, uh, this is reflecting what's working and what I need to focus on um, and give you like a clear direction for where professional development can take place because it's based directly on the qualitative data that's coming from the students. So I went through that process and asked those students questions and then flowed into the focus. And the focus for me this year is really around writing. How can I support my writers in their writing, not only in writing time, but in all aspects of their writing. And that allowed me then to focus my attention on particular professional development that supported my students and also as a result supported me. So I went to um, the Network of Inquiry and Indigenous Education. They have tons of case studies on their website. So I was able to lean on other districts, other educators and teachers who were sharing about their experience. And luckily, one of them happened to align with my own inquiry. And I was able to test some of the strategies, some of the tools, um, some of the techniques that had worked for them. And it also deepened my own practice. Um, so we're right now um, almost toward the end of the first spiral. And um, the taking action and the checking. And it's so amazing to see the results of um, the spiral. Because I have students who had a particular, um, I guess, story about who they are as writers and weren't super open to receiving feedback, for example. Um, they had a very constrained view of what, what writing could look like, was. And, you know, that's from their experience and also maybe from what they've practiced or whatever. 
and um, it's so amazing to give them an opportunity to practice skills and in an open way and mm-hmm. um, integrate other tools like the strategic action cycle, which was created yeah. in Delta. I mean, what a powerful tool for self-regulation and learning yeah. Yeah. and for students to take real ownership of where they learn, who they are learning with, you know, what their goal is, how they're going mm-hmm. to set themselves up and how they determine what's next. Mm-hmm. So all of these things kind of folded in as a result of this question that I had, and I guess my own curiosity. So as a curious cat, um, (laughs) I really, really um, gravitate towards the spiral of inquiry and inquiry itself because there's lots of questions and you are led down many different paths. Love it. Uh, I do want to follow up with something that you said very early on and and repeated a couple of times, and that is the openness of inquiry-based learning. Um, For listeners out there who are, you know, they they look at the idea of openness and and love it, and I don't know an educator that would not be uh, loving that idea of openness. And yet, at the same time, you know, we have provinces and states that have mandated curriculum. They have standards or outcomes. In, In BC here, we have curricular competencies that you know, students need to to learn. And in other provinces and states, there's outcomes, there's curricular standards in the U.S. So how do you balance this idea of openness with, uh, obviously, every jurisdiction has particular outcomes or goals that students need to hit. How do you balance the openness with that requirement? That's a good question, Tom. Um, I find that I am a braider of learning. And so the openness, I struggled with at times because it kind of required me to release some of the tightness, I suppose you could say, in needing things to be done at a particular time. Like Mm -hmm. this thing has to be done at this specific time. So it allowed me to go into a place of flow. But for example, my um, inquiry right now is reflective of what my students need. Um, It focuses specifically on writing, but then I can go to the curricular and um, the curricular standards, the competencies, the curricular outcomes, and kind of align, I guess you could say, like a braid, my inquiry with what is mandated by the ministry and braid those things together. And it also allows me to fold in other things. So if I look at personal and social identity and responsibility, mm-hmm. that's where I can fold in the strategic action cycle. Mm-hmm. So I would say that there's also intentionality behind the openness. Yeah. And I think that those two things together are really powerful because openness by itself can seem a little bit, um, I don't know, I, I don't want to say chaotic, But in a way, it's like, oh, my goodness, what about the direction? Mm. But openness with intentionality and being able to draw from um, resources, research that's grounded and rooted in best practice is where I find all of those things come together in a really powerful way. So I'm glad you asked. Yeah. 
It's, um, well, no, openness without intentionality is chaos. I can tell you from firsthand experience, you are probably uh, much too young to remember anything like this. But when I was in elementary school in the early 1970s, we implemented this thing called open area. These were open spaces. So at the end of the hallway, there was a big classroom and there were three grades within that one classroom. Sometimes it was two grades at, of the same grade level. So two second grade classes or something like that. And uh, I was in the in that setting, I think in, in grade two and grade three. And I think it's part of the reason why I was behind as a reader, because it was pure mayhem. It was just right. walk around, explore. I don't, I don't really remember. I mean, I was very young, but it yeah. was one of those things where there was no intention. I mean, the intent was there. I get the the uh, the sentiment was there, but it was pure chaos, and we were just walking around like, what are we supposed to do? Like, I don't know yeah. what I'm doing. Uh, so I I love the idea of braiding because I think it's important to uh, just keep in mind that that as as teachers explore inquiry based learning, that's the process of learning, right? That's how we're getting to the the outcomes and the standards are the end result, but there are yeah. many different pathways for kids to get there and ways that they can move through uh, in order to achieve that certain outcome. I also now want to ask you about. I think most most would probably be familiar to some degree of inquiry-based learning in terms of piquing curiosity, relevance, what are you curious about, what questions do you have, how do we explore, all of those things. But in particular, you, you keep, of course, mentioning, because you're part of this network, the spirals of inquiry. So can you tell us a little bit more specifically about what that means? When you, when you say you're through the first spiral, what mm. do you mean? What does that what does that mean specifically around the spiral part? I think most people understand inquiry-based learning to a point, yeah. but what does spiraling mean for you? That's a great question. So um, the Network of Inquiry in Indigenous Education was founded by Judy um, Halbert and Linda Kayser. Yeah. And the spirals of inquiry was developed with several educators from all over the province. It's grounded in research. And the spiral is a particular framework. And so educators are invited to begin a spiral with um, the scan. And the scan is a, a certain number of questions that you would ask and collect that data, which ultimately um, points you towards a direction that you might need to travel with your, with your students and as educators. The spiral has a particular flow to it, or as Judy and Linda would say, a rhythm. And you start with the scan, then you move towards focusing. Afterwards, after focusing, you develop a bit of a hunch and see, hmm, like, what other data might I need to collect in order to help support me so that I know that I'm moving in a direction that's intentional. It's based off of what students are telling me or showing me. Um, for example, my data that I collected was a fall right. Um, and then um, the learning part is really important. What else do I need to learn? And so for me, that allowed me to continue digging in um, in a professional development sense. So what other resources, what other strategies, what other research do I need to look at in order to better support my students? Then it turns into the check, um, sorry, not the check, the action phase. And you take that learning into action in your classroom, in your school, in your district. 
And finally, you have that check. And the check is really important because you want to know, is what you're doing working? Mm -hmm. And the thing that I love about the spiral is that you can go backwards and forwards throughout the spiral. Mm -hmm. So let's say, you know, you went to the to the action phase and you went, "Mm -mm, this is not working for my students. Mm -hmm. You can flow backwards into the learning phase and revamp, revisit, um, readjust to then go back to the take action stage. Yeah. The thing about the spiral too, is that it's exactly that. It's a spiral, which means that just like a visual of a spiral, it never ends. Mm -hmm. So people can start at that scan phase, but there's no prescription for thou shalt spend this amount of time on the scan. Thou shalt spend this amount of time on the learning. Um, Mm -hmm. The intentionality, of course, is to make your way through the spiral at a particular time. And I get that, you know, I'm in an elementary level. So I have the benefit of having my students all year long. This spiral might look different at a secondary school level because, of course, they're semestered or lineared. So that would look very different um, when you don't have your students in front of you and with you building relationship for an entire year. I have the benefit of having them every single day, um, except for preps. So the the deepness and the ability to spiral and then revisit, do the check and then go through another spiral with the same students is um, quite luxurious, I guess mm-hmm. you could say, at the elementary level. Now, you would not suggest, of course, though, this can't be done at the secondary level. So what, what are some of the compromises that are okay. I mean, there's obviously core things that are non-negotiable. Um, and I don't mean that in the strictest sense, but I mean, there are, there are core principles that, that you follow, but what are, what are some things that, you know, if I'm a high school teacher right now and I'm listening to you, you're making you, I I could wrongly interpret that to say, well, it's not really doable at the secondary level, but I know that's not what you're saying. So what, what is it that secondary teachers would have to be, I suppose, realistic about or understand about spirals of inquiry. If I get my students for 75 minutes a day or an hour a day or 45 minutes a day, and I only have them for a semester. Yeah. I'm so glad you followed up um, Tom about that. Um, The spiral, I think that what would be worth considering is how the interviews are conducted. Mm -hmm. So, I think that that could potentially um, be conducted in a way that's maybe a little bit faster. Mm -hmm. Um, So at a high school level, um, I know programs like Padlet or um, Microsoft Forms um, could be a place or space that educators use, a platform, I guess you could say, in order to collect that data and have students reflect on those questions. Mm-hmm. I know Shane Safir just posted something on Twitter and had used Padlet to ask, um, I think it was 50 students in the high school setting, what is it that you want educators to know? And so that's another way to collect data. I mean, I have the benefit of sitting beside students or having CEAs sit beside students. Um, the other thing too is the consideration to lean on community. So in the spirals of inquiry, there also is that consideration of who else could I tap on in order to support me through the scanning phase? Because undoubtedly that time is really precious 
but it also is the most amount of time that you'll spend collecting that data from students because you're not having, you know, uh, 25 to 30 conversations in 30 minutes. That just doesn't happen in a school day. Um, and so, you know, who, who else could support you? Whether, you know, if it's an administrator that's willing to support you and come in maybe and offer you some time, some release time. Do you have CEAs in the classroom that you can lean on? Are there parents who you trust and know um, who can also maintain the confidentiality of students and also be leaned on for that level of support? So I think that there are ways to um, navigate it um, with, you know, less time with students um, and also it to be really powerful and impactful. I think one of the also you make me think that, you know, one of the outcomes, the ultimate outcomes of inquiry based learning is, you know, independence, that students are invested in their own learning, that they are self-reliant, self-regulatory about their learning. So I think one of the advantages you have at the secondary level is you don't have to be as hands on because you have students who are more mature. I, I know sometimes secondary teachers will say, well, the students aren't mature. Well, they're more mature than they were in the fourth grade. So let's just get that right. Uh, so so there's times, of course, but generally speaking, you have students who are more mature. Uh, and if you have a district or even a school approach to inquiry-based learning, the spirals of inquiry, you have habits that are built up as well, that students are into that routine and that flow. So I do think there are some ways that secondary schools can create some efficiency around the model. Whereas at the elementary level, you are, as you introduce this to students, you're probably a little bit more hands-on and needing to guide them a little bit more as we go. I want to ask you two questions uh, simultaneously, if you will, about inquiry-based learning. Um, they're kind of a flip on one another. I want to first ask you, so I'll ask both questions and let you sort of find your way uh, through both of them. The first question is, what aspect of inquiry-based learning did you find more challenging than you anticipated? And the other question is, what aspect did you find less challenging than you actually anticipated when you first began this journey? So uh, let's let's talk about both of those. First, what what did you find more challenging than maybe you anticipated? Well, if I go back to kind of the beginning of my exploration of inquiry, it was challenging for me to release some of the tension or expectations that I had that learning had to look a particular way. Mm -hmm. And so as you know, I'm in my ninth year, but I would say within the first five years of teaching, I really shied away from inquiry based learning because it was like going from being the driver of learning in the driver's seat with my hands on the wheel and all of my students were in the bus and we were along the ride and the journey together to students having a destination and you know some some expectations and of course you know curricular competencies that we needed to cover but the destination being the same, but the journey looking different. That to me was terrifying. And I remember being introduced even to Trevor McKenzie's work and I was like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what this even looks like. <laughs> like, no, thank you. This looks very challenging. And so being reintroduced to the idea of inquiry once again, mm-hmm. being introduced to 
structure and flow. And Trevor McKenzie also would argue structure and flow too. Of course. Of course. Um, but to me, for whatever reason, I thought it was just flow. And like you said, flow it flow on its own is a lot of chaos. <laughs> and that to me, my brain just could not compute. Um, so to have those two partner together um, is what I find so magical about the spirals and mm -hmm. um, having a bit of a framework and outline that allows me to um, flow through the the inquiry without mm -hmm. a specific plan as to timeline that something needs to be completed is something that I really love and it's something that I'm embracing more and I think with confidence um, having finished a, a master's I feel yeah. like my skill set, my confidence, my all of those things have built. And so I feel more comfortable as well transitioning into a place where I don't need to know all of the answers. I just have more questions. I mean, the beginning of my career, I was so scared to spell something wrong on the board. Of course, of course. <laughs> um, so I think that that really has yeah. been the most challenging and also simultaneously, Tom, the most rewarding. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. I could see that for sure. Yeah. What about the opposite? The what did you find? What were what did you find that was daunting and you thought, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought, or that wasn't as hard as I thought. I I thought that would be more challenging than I thought. I thought that receiving qualitative data from students highlighting mm -hmm. the places that I needed to go would be very daunting mm -hmm. because ultimately they're shining a mirror on the things that I'm doing really well at and articulating mm -hmm. and the things that need more focus. And sometimes I think there can be a fear of receiving feedback, no matter who the audience is, mm -hmm. whether it's parents, whether it's other educators observing um, and students themselves. But I found that also to be the most powerful because I would also argue that the spirals of inquiry requires courage. It requires courage to look at and go, this is working really well. Awesome. That's not a place that needs focus right now. Yeah. This is an area that does need focus because my students are telling me so. So it requires that courage and vulnerability to say, I'm not, I, I, I have areas that need support. I mean, mm -hmm. it's quite ironic that my master's is in literacy and language arts and my students are saying, this is an area that needs some more focus. So mm -hmm. it was very reflective for me as well to go, okay, I need to dig in a little right. more. So right. yeah, not that. as terrifying. <laughs> That's, I love that. You know, as you talk about sort of the balance between structure and, and the openness, it makes me think, and listeners, you've heard me say this a, a lot over the years, uh, it makes me think of music. Music is something where when we think of creativity or we think of uh, the idea of ex exploration, there's, there's, music is about as structured as anything. There are notes, there are rhythms, there, there, there is a structure to writing a song. Not that I know intimately, I've never written a song, but it makes me think of like, there's no more creative expression and no more way that a, that a person could explore their musicality, right? Through music. And yet it's a very structured kind of, if you just had the openness, it would be mayhem and, and the sound wouldn't be there. So there is structure to it. And yet 
there's nothing more creative than than writing music. I think of architecture too. I think you know some there's just some creative buildings out there and ex, and and pushing the limits of, and yet there's always a structure that underpins, right? There's always a code that underpins, and I think that's where we find our balance in the classroom is that there is structure, there is routine, there's predictability in the exploration, in the asking of questions, in the in the tapping into curiosity. When it comes to inquiry, the big question I think a lot of people have, Ashley, is around assessment. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I want to focus on that. Like, how do you approach assessment? And did your move to spirals of inquiry change how you assess your students? Yeah, so I started um, my exploration around assessment um, in the district I'm so lucky to be able to have worked with Myron Duick quite a bit um, and also some other educators and really explore my own process of assessing others. And I think that the best conversations that happened for me um, happened when people challenged my own understanding of what it is to assess students. And my process in assessment is continuing to grow and evolve and change also from listening to podcasts like yours, Tom. Um, It's really interesting because um, assessment is also a focus in the spirals of inquiry and at the Network of Inquiry and Indigenous Education. And their whole purpose at the network is that students cross the stage with dignity, purpose, and with options. And so every strand at the spirals, or at the network, sorry, supports educators to be able to effectively, intentionally use the spiral and use the resources in thoughtful thoughtful ways to support student learning. And assessment is a part of that conversation, along mm-hmm. with self-regulated learning, right. numeracy, literacy and language arts, you name it, there it's a part of it. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had other people who are network leaders um, really introduced to me ideas such as Ron Berger's work. He talks a lot about the power of feedback. And I really um, saw how important feedback was, mm-hmm. how important it not only is for educators to be sharing feedback with their students on the spot, reflections from assignments and activities that are completed, but also how important it is for peers to give and receive feedback. And so that to me is something that has been integrated into my practice very intentionally this year. And it's been amazing to hear students um, articulate themselves why feedback is so important Mm -hmm. and, and deliver feedback to one another. So we do, for example, authors chair and the students have an opportunity to share their writing in a more, um, I guess you could say both informal and formal setting. Mm. I roll up the captain's chair and um, (laughs) students can sit in it and um, everyone else gathers. And so the, the powerful part about that is after they're finished, students provide the author's feedback, but feedback also happens all throughout. So in the brainstorming, turn to someone, ask for feedback, integrate that feedback into your learning. And we've been practicing that all throughout the school year. We started actually, speaking of creativity, Tom, with art. So draw this 
leaf based on a picture. Now ask, and feedback is kind, specific, and it's helpful. Mm-hmm. Ask your neighbor what 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 feedback they have, how you could improve this. And we used Ron Berger's um, example, Austin's Butterfly, which if you haven't seen that, it's a really powerful visual for, for learners um, mm-hmm. to improve learning. And it's interesting because I had a parent come to me and say, my child um, used to really struggle with receiving criticism from anybody that would have them reduced to tears. But now that you've reframed it to feedback and given her an outline of it being kind, specific, and helpful, that has completely shifted the way that she views herself and how she integrates the feedback that she's receiving, whether it's from you or it's from peers. Now, the other part of assessment, of course, is ensuring that we're hitting the competencies and all the expectations outlined for I teach grade five mm-hmm. um, and that the ministry has outlined. So it's been really amazing because I've had opportunities to explore with Myron, um, listening to you as well, and um, also just exploring through um, the network and what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. Conversations like rubric as well and how powerful it is not only to create a rubric myself but also to have students co-create those rubrics with me Mm -hmm. and then of course the most powerful part to me is the self-reflection so students engage in that self-reflective practice Mm -hmm. before they even submit anything to me so they have so much power over this is where I believe that I was based on the proficiency scale and you know, this was my goal. We talk a lot about goal setting and mm-hmm. that's part of the ministry's mandates too and um, integrate those into our practice. So I would say that having a lot of support with other educators through mm-hmm. the network because they're all over the province and are wrestling with, celebrating, trying mm-hmm. out strategies um, mm-hmm. that are working for students. So I hope that answers your question. No, absolutely. No. I mean, you know, we've, we have for decades known that feedback it's, it's almost unanimous agreement in academia that feedback is how you raise achievement. And of course, what gives you the opportunity to provide feedback is to gather evidence from the students upon which you base your feedback. So you are, to me, you are, you're speaking my language there, Ashley, for sure. Uh, uh, feedback is is definitely where it's at. Okay, so before we finish up, Ashley, I want I want to give you an opportunity to promote a couple things. Sixty seconds or less. Can you tell us about the network? Give us a little bit of like the the like what is the network of inquiry in Indigenous education? I know it's in the name, but tell us a little bit. Sixty seconds or less. Tell us a little bit about that network and what some of the benefits are of of being a part of that. Okay, sixty seconds or less. I got yeah. this. Um, the network of inquiry is. <laughs> has been founded by Judy Halbert and Linda yeah. Kayser. Their primary right. goal is to ensure all students cross the stage with dignity, purpose, and options. Right. They have focused a lot of their attention on Indigenous peoples, Indigenous students, and raising okay. the bar right. so that they can cross the stage as well with options, right. with dignity, and purpose. Right. The network is a collection of educators who can gather in. It doesn't matter what level you are at to explore questions that you have. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean that you're using the spirals for your work, but that obviously mm-hmm. is one of the primary focuses. And use work that has been grounded in research um, and apply it into your classroom. So 
So Dr. Leighton Schnellert, Dr. Nancy Perry, those are folks who are tapped into and um, very much their research is a part of the network as well. So it's not just for educators within the public sector, but the mm -hmm. private sector, all the way up to it's being used in universities as well by professors. Um, mm -hmm. And really, we our goal is equity and quality in education. And Love I can it. think of no other purposes that Absolutely. are Absolutely. more important. I'll make sure there's a link uh, in the show notes for that. And uh, this being January, um, is the podcast out now or is it just about to be released? Or tell it's, us a little bit of, tell us about the podcast. Yes. So... I will soon be a podcast host, although, Tom, you're making it look so easy. So <laughs> I've got a ways to go for the easy part, um, but I'm super excited to be um, launching the Spirals of Inquiry, an educational podcast on Spotify or wherever you can find a podcast. Of course. And basically, my um, primary purpose is to celebrate, uplift, and amplify the work of the network and of the spirals of inquiry. And so I'm interviewing different people from across the province, but also across the world, mm -hmm. who have intentionally used the spirals in their practice, and also to hope that maybe one or a hundred or a thousand, I don't know, people listen to the podcast and think, ooh, that sounds really interesting. I'm gonna go explore. Mm -hmm. So uh, this was a challenge um, that was offered to all of us. How can we amplify the work of the network? And mm -hmm. I said, well, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And there you go. Here I am now hosting and I have this fancy microphone. There you go. I love <laughs> it. I love it. I <laughs> uh, will also, uh, and thank you, Ashley. That's, you know, after, after more than a hundred episodes, I hope I'm starting to figure things out for sure. But, um, I'll have a link in the show notes, listeners, for uh, that podcast as well. And Ashley, as I as I travel around, if I come across people that I think would be great guests for you and and uh, are engaged in inquiry based learning, because there's certainly a global network out there um, through the International Baccalaureate Program, the MYP, the Middle Years Program, is very much inquiry driven, and uh, there's there's a lot of opportunities to have some guests from around the world. So I'll keep my eyes and ears open for you and and send people your way. Uh, oh, if we can. You. So let's, uh, let's finish awesome. up to, to uh, yeah, no, happy to do it. Um, and good luck with the, the podcast. If there's anything I can do to help you, just let me know. Um, two questions as we finish up, Ashley, uh, real quick, one serious, one not so serious. But uh, the first one is, uh, generally speaking, uh, you can take this in any direction you want to go. But the question is, educationally speaking, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Like, what gets you fired up besides inquiry-based learning? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We know um, that gets you out of bed. But that what else, gets what else me gets out of bed. Maybe um, get a little more granular or specific or something. Like, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Like, what, what okay. gets you fired up every day? Okay. I am really curious. So that curiosity is what allows me to get out of the bed. And I know it's not granular, but every part of who I am is curious about how I can support students and create um, a space that is more equitable for student learning. Listen, I'm a person of color. I um, have had, you know, individuals in my family who identify in the LGBTQ2 plus community. So in a lot of ways, I see equity as a huge importance in education in general. Yeah. And so every part of me, my explorations, whether it's assessment, 
indigenous ways of knowing and being, literacy and language arts, numeracy, um, those curiosities I have all kind of fall under the umbrella of how can I create equitable learning for my students that is of quality. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I like to say that I'm a master of none and a jack of all trades maybe <laughs> because I just am so curious about so many things. So I don't have a particular focus, um, mm-hmm. which some might say no focus means like, you know, you need to have a focus, but my focus is more of a North Star. Yeah. which is, um, and, and I, I, I don't know, just a curious cat, Tom. I, I love it. I love it. Um, I think, uh, and I don't know that I was always good at this during my career, but I think the most effective teachers and those who have the greatest impact are the ones who remain curious about our own profession and continue mm-hmm. to grow and learn. Um, there's, it's a long career and a lot changes in education and we have to, it's not about just following trends, but it is about paying attention to how we continue to understand learning for sure. Finally, uh, the last question of course is, uh, always about food because I love food and, uh, I like one of the things I love to do, you know, hit the restaurants and uh, whether it's a hole in the wall or a nice place to eat, but you yes. live in Summerland and I know Summerland very well. So this can be an interesting question. Ashley, yes. Usually I don't know where people live, so they could tell me anything. Yeah. But I know Summerland. So yes. my question to you, of course, is I love food. You live in Summerland. From your perspective, where's the best place to eat in Summerland? Okay. So you might remember this from when you lived here, but Shaughnessy's Cove oh, yeah. has been revamped relatively recently. Now, if you're looking for a nice place to dine and – um a beautiful location it's located right on the water then i'd highly recommend it they have revamped so i think the couple is originally from here Mm -hmm. they moved to vancouver for some time opened some very successful restaurants in the lower Mm -hmm. mainland Mm -hmm. and then returned back and took over shaughnessy's cove and the gun barrel i don't know if you were an apex person absolutely so they took them over and the food is so good the cauliflower wings are excellent mm-hmm. and uh i really am a person that loves aesthetics as well mm-hmm. um if i wasn't an educator maybe an interior designer <laughs> but it's also very beautiful to look at so yeah. <laughs> for its beauty and food i'd recommend shaughnessy's co i love that because when i first moved to penticton i worked in summerline but lived in penticton but when we were in summerline we would often go down to shaughnessy's Cove for um, you know, staff gatherings and it was really good. And then honestly, it started to go downhill and it started to become a place that wasn't that great. So I love hearing because it's such a great location right there on the lake. Um, and so I love hearing that they've kind of revamped that. And, uh, so next time I'm in, uh, in Summerland, I'll have to check that out for sure. Uh, listeners, I would really encourage you to, uh, to connect with Ashley online on X or Twitter. Um, the handle is at Miss Ashley Aoki. Uh, I'll have a link in the show notes for that. She's also on LinkedIn as well. You can connect there. We'll have a link for the podcast as well uh, to make sure, and the network to make sure that you can connect with Ashley as well. So Ashley, this was, um, it was fabulous to reconnect with you. I haven't seen you personally in a long, long time. Um, you're all grown up now and I'm very proud of the work you're doing um, and and certainly am inspired, uh, re-inspired because you know having former students choose the profession tells us collectively, I don't take any responsibility for it, but collectively it tells us that we are we are doing the right thing and, and doing the right work and inspiring our students to 
choose education as a career. So um, really, really great to see you. Um, good luck going forward Thank with the podcast. Uh, again, anything I can do to support you, well, uh, just please let me know. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Tom. And thanks to the audience as well for listening in. It's time for a radical transformation of our education system. It's time to each find our unique voice and come together in an inclusive space that values our differences. It's time to leave antiquated assessment and grading practices behind and cultivate brave spaces of authentic learning. There's strength in numbers. Let's build a critical mass of change makers. If you're ready to become a visionary catalyst for change in education, then join myself, Katie White, and my two co-hosts, Natalie Vardabasso and Tom Shimmer at the second annual Empowerment Ecosystem Summit. We are offering two ways for you to join us this year, in Calgary, Alberta on April 11th and 12th, or in Vancouver, British Columbia, May 23rd and 24th. Use the link in this episode's description to check out our website for more details and to register. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to address the issue of assessment pressure. Now, longtime listeners will know that I often on this podcast and elsewhere speak about the emotional side of assessment and how important it is to pay attention to that as much as the technical side. That students will have an emotional reaction to the prospect of being assessed, but that emotional reaction can be productive or it could be counterproductive, right? We can shape the culture of assessment to one where students see assessment as an opportunity rather than something to be feared. I've also, on this podcast and elsewhere, talked extensively about stress and pressure and the difference between those two. And I used to use those words interchangeably, but this is from Performing Under Pressure, The Science of Doing Your Best When It Matters the Most by Henry Weisinger and J.P. Polly Fry. They talk about the difference between stress and pressure. Stress being a daily occurrence is when you have too many demands and not enough resources, whereas pressure happens more in intervals. It's when something truly at stake is dependent upon the outcome of your performance. Both are inevitable in life, but the key is learning how to handle pressure, right? So stress is a daily occurrence. Pressure happens sort of in intervals or episodic and sort of in moments, but both are unavoidable. And it brings up an interesting sort of dilemma around assessment or conversations, especially that I've had over the last number of weeks or so in, in both in 2024, but also in 2023. So like I said, both stress and pressure are ine inevitable. And so the key is learning how to handle those things, especially pressure, not, not how to eliminate it. I think in some cases we could eliminate it, but here's where I'm going with this. As I mentioned, I've recently had, you know, several small group meetings where we were talking about this very issue around stress and pressure and the pressure that can emerge from the experience of being assessed. Now, sometimes that pressure is self-inflicted by students on themselves, and sometimes it's externally sourced, but nonetheless, there can be a lot of pressure that surrounds assessment. But what I find interesting in those conversations, but not, not really surprising, is that many of the educators, and again, I'm not saying most, I'm not saying the majority, but enough to notice, many of the educators instinctively want to change the assessment to try to reduce the pressure to protect students from it. If we take away the pressure, after all, then all will be well. Or will it? If, if pressure is unavoidable, then I wonder sometimes if the answer is not to take away the pressure but to teach students the coping skills to handle the pressure. If that pressure is inevitable, we, we probably would be better off teaching our students how to handle pressure rather than trying to 
avoid pressure. I just paused there because I know exactly how what I just said is likely to be misinterpreted if I don't clarify. I wish I didn't have to do this, but I know the minute I say, hey, let's not avoid pressure, there's going to be people listening, maybe maybe not others, who'll think I'm all about putting pressure on kids. And that's ridiculous. Like people will say, like, Tom, are you saying we should put lots of pressure on students? No, I'm not. The pressure that emerges naturally from an assessment experience is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not advocating that we as adults ramp up the pressure, but if pressure is unavoidable, then how exactly are we going to remove it, right? Uh, some people might say, well, Tom, what about parents who put way too much pressure on their kids? Yes, that's an issue. And in acute situations where that is the reality, we need to intervene and make sure that pressure is not something we add. It's just something that naturally we feel. So I think there's a big difference between that. Um, Tom, what about the students with high rates of anxiety? Yep, we have to intervene with that as well and help those students manage those situations to make sure that their anxiety doesn't interfere with their ability to perform or to remember or to concentrate, right? So all of these things are true. So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying, hey, let's pile on the pressure and season those kids because I don't buy into that at all. But on the one hand, if pressure is unavoidable, then the goal to eliminate it is probably misguided, right? What I do know is that the, oh, these poor little babies is not the answer. That's not the approach because bubble wrapping these kids and, and not giving them the coping skills is, is, is not the answer. Again, the key, and I go back to Weisinger and Polly Fry, the key is learning to handle pressure. So a reminder, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, a reminder, what Henry Weisinger and Polly Fry found, J.P. Polly Fry found in their research was that people who learn to handle pressure approach pressure with confidence, optimism, tenacity, and enthusiasm. So if our students can become more confident, optimistic, tenacious, and enthusiastic, then they'll handle the inevitable pressure that is associated with assessment and likely not feel as much of it, right? So confidence, make sure they're competent. I've been saying this for years, maybe over a decade, that confidence comes through competence. Like it's not, confidence is not a sense of entitlement or an inflated view of your ability. It's real optimism based on some semblance of of knowing that I have the competence to, you know, demonstrate my learning or the competence to know the material. Being optimistic is related to that, right? And past successes will help me feel more optimistic. If you want to really develop confidence, then you need success first. Like this, the question of what comes first, success or confidence? Well, success needs to come first because until I see some semblance of success, I can't truly feel confident. It's not about pep talks. It's about real optimism, right? So confidence and optimism are related. When our students become tenacious, they will likely be immersed in a continual learning mindset, site, uh, mindset which means we learn from our mistakes, you know, a, a process or a pathway to recovery, this idea of reassessment and continual learning. When they know that, they'll approach the pressure situation and say, hey, this is just an opportunity for me to take inventory on where I am right now, and there's always a pathway forward. And enthusiastic, okay, 
enthusiastic to, <laughs> to a point. Um, I'm not saying that students are going to love being assessed in the grand scheme of things. However, you can cultivate an environment where kids can be a little bit, you know, relatively speaking, a little bit excited about the opportunity to show what they know. So the reality is that we probably can't eliminate pressure altogether because a lot of pressure is self-inflicted. And, you know, some of it's not terrible. Feeling a little bit of pressure kind of keeps you sharp, like before you're going to play a big game or before there's a big performance or there's an important moment. Um, that, that can help us actually not get complacent, like a little bit of that pressure, just kind of feeling like you want to perform. Uh, we can certainly reduce the amount of pressure students feel by eliminating any pressure that we as the adults add to the situation. So if there is going to be any pressure in any situation, then we want it to be sort of the self-inflicted kind, but we don't want it to be debilitating. So that's where we keep an eye on our students, those who have high rates of anxiety, those who tend to overreact to situations, all of those situations we have to pay attention to. But on the net, a little bit of pressure that is self-inflicted will have you study, prepare, lean into the learning as opposed to becoming complacent. A little bit of pressure isn't necessarily a bad thing as long as it's handled correctly, but it can't be every day. And it, and it has to be age appropriate, of course. So let's, as adults, not act like their diorama in grade three is akin to the AP extended essay. Like, let's just understand where kids are developmentally. And I think most of you, if not all of you, understand uh, what I'm saying here, right? I just think that if your students are feeling a disproportionate amount of, you know, pressure surrounding any assessment, it's not really the assessment that needs to change. It's kind of everything around it. Like, how did we prepare them? Are they prepared? How did they prepare themselves? What is the pathway to recovery? If they stumble, did we practice enough? Was there enough of a sample for us to know that they're ready for this assessment? So when the anxiety starts to come up, it could be a glance in the mirror to say, hey, let's ask some tough questions of ourselves and of our students in terms of the preparation before we conduct this assessment or, or create this opportunity or whatever it might be. I, I, you know... A little bit of pressure, as I've said. Like, I just remember this from my days as an athlete. Like, I, 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 I often felt the most pressure when I felt the least prepared. When I felt prepared and I felt that sort of confidence and optimism and tenacity and enthusiasm about a game or something like that, I didn't feel as much pressure. So I know our instinct is to protect the poor little babies. But rather than bubble wrap them, you know, so to speak, let's, let's just make an adjustment that is necessary to help them be able to handle the inevitable pressure that comes. And I'm, again, not suggesting that the pressure that a second grader feels is the same as a senior in high school. The age appropriateness is really important. But I do really feel strongly that we have to help our students learn to handle the inevitable pressure that comes in all situations, including assessment. If we at least remove the externally sourced pressure and focused on thoroughly preparing students and creating an environment of success, confidence, optimism, tenacity, and enthusiasm, we have a greater chance of helping them learn to handle pressure that inevitably will come. Real confidence, I think, is actually feeling the pressure and maybe just a little bit of the fear. 
but having more courage to focus and to follow through and to know that you have the skills and the preparation to do your absolute best. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast or me or both on Twitter at Tom Shimmer, at Tom Shimmer Pod, Instagram at Tom Shimmer, at Tom Shimmer Podcast, YouTube and TikTok at Tom Shimmer Podcast. Also, please email the pod, TomShimmerPod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder, check the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning events happening uh, early part of 2024, as I mentioned in the opening. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.